If you've seen a graph or chart that tries to explain the impact of COVID-19, chances are it'll show the number of tests that have been carried out, the number of new infections recorded, the number of people who've died, or an economic number about jobs, GDP, or government investment. They're all important, but they don't tell the whole story of COVID-19. This week on Public Sector Perspectives, we look at the impact of COVID-19 through a gender lens. Our guide is Tanya Kovac, CEO of Gender Equity Victoria, the big organisation for women's and gender equality across the state. It's a new organisation that covers many different portfolios and areas of government, and so its membership is much broader than just one particular industry or field. This means that as well as being able to offer insights into the different impacts that the COVID crisis is having on men and women, Tanya Kovacs also able to offer some perspective on how important parts of the community sector are faring during the crisis. This matters for the public sector because the community sector is an important source of policy advice, expertise and service delivery. So I began by asking her when it first became clear to her about just what the scale of the COVID crisis was going to be. Look, I, I don't want to place myself as a soothsayer, but I have to say that um, I think my I have got immunosuppressed people in my wider family. And, um, and so actually in January over, you know, when you're sort of having that post-festive season, um, I took the news reports that were coming out of China quite seriously and um, and so did my extended family because we just have to be a bit vigilant about that for our parents. And so my sister and I spent quite a lot of time reflecting on that and I, I think she was, I think probably I would say to you, she became a little bit obsessed with the data. So I would say to you, I personally had a very had a much um, earlier understanding of how quickly this was going to um, become a problem that was not going to be easy to control. And so part of, like, Genvic actually responded quite quickly, decided to reduce, to, you know, step out of being, doing public interactions quicker than maybe other organisations and went online very quickly as well. Um, also, because we had other staff members with, um, immuno issues too. So that really, our care for people in my immediate family, but then also in my work family, drove um, quick action, actually. So it, that, yeah, it was pretty early on, mate. The public sector depends very heavily on the advice and the service delivery expertise that exists in the non-government sector. And GEVs is a peak body, in the non-government sector. So one of the things that you're in a unique position to see is how COVID's affecting a whole series of organisations, not just your own. Um, what's your perspective on how COVID-19 is affecting the non-government organisations, particularly the one that are part of GEV? I might just start with people first. I think that, um, you know, it's having a profound impact on staff. Um, I'm hearing incredible reports from our CEOs about the level of um, pastoral care, checking in um, and 
um, and support that is actually being delivered at a community organisational level. This is um, professionally and personally challenging uh, crisis for a lot of people. And if you want them to be good workers and deliver solutions in the community sector, it's requiring some heart and empathy for their what's happening for them in their in their household. You know, we're inviting work to come into people's um, private spaces in ways that we've never thought possible for before. Maybe maybe women and feminists did think it was possible, um, and and with that comes a responsibility, an increased responsibility. So I've seen that impact at a personal level. I think there's more HR, there's more support that's required for staff. Um, on a funding level, I think it's created enormous amounts of funding uncertainty for organisations. I think there's clearly a lot of nervousness in Treasury about the where the you know sort of future funding for the state is coming from, and of course that flows down into the community sector, and it becomes great anxiety about you know is there going to be enough money for this project? Are things that um are, are um considered that are part of the community sector going to be considered to be core business, or will they be given short shrift? And you know for things that are to do with prevention and um, gender equity, I think, um, you know, which are traditionally difficult things that often don't always have lots of funding coming towards them. Um, those issues can be really acute and that's what where the sector probably is at the moment. You mentioned gender equity there and it's, uh, I, mean, I guess it's easy to imagine that over the last three months we've all, that we've all shared the same experience. Um, but I wondered from your perspective, what have been some of the ways that gender has shaped our different experiences of COVID-19? I, I think that there is such an interesting experience of looking at the importance of sex and gender disaggregated data and how fundamental it is to getting good policy solutions. So if you just look at it as a pure health, health issue, clearly COVID-19 is a gendered health problem because it's having profound, diff profoundly different impacts for men. So you are at greater risk of being very, very ill or dying if you're a bloke. Now, we're interested, Jed Vic is actually interested in that because there's significance about, the, about why, why is gendered data important? Because the nuanced health responses to address that unique fact that we know that's coming out from the, case, from the um, health case studies, um, there are, our, all of our responses should be tailored to address that. Likewise... In terms of mental health, women are a far greater risk of mental health consequences as a, as a consequence of lockdown. So we're hearing, you know, 35% of women are having moderate to severe levels of depression. We're hearing that a an unusual cohort, age cohort, which doesn't usually have any suicidal ideation, which is that age 18 to 24 age group for women, that they are now reporting high levels of, of suicidal thoughts compared to 17%, so 37% compared to 17% of young men in the same age group. Women are, you know, more nervous, more lonely, um, and, you know, without wanting to play into some stereotypes, they're, they're eating more and they're actually drinking more. So, you know, this is... There's that. So we again, there's sex and gender disaggregated data tells us a picture. So those things are really important, and from a health perspective, and so there's definitely a gendered issue about this for us. 
Why are women suffering from mental health problems? I'd probably tell you that that's the, the economic impact of COVID-19 writ large. So, you know, at the moment, the full-time unemployment rate in Victoria for women is 7.5% and it's 5.8% for men. So really the people who've lost their jobs during COVID-19 have largely been women um, and, you know, all of our responses in terms of stimulus investment and job creation, um, that's why we're calling for it to be gender equal. We really need a gender equal recovery um, because clearly there have been significant economic impacts for women in Victoria. One of the consequences of COVID-19, I suppose, has been a, a series of sort of real world experiments in public policy and one of them has been to have a very large number of people working from home. Now, compulsory working from home isn't the same as workplace flexibility, um, but it seems unlikely that sort of office-based workplaces are going to snap back to the way they were. What do you think the last three months has taught us about the role of workplace flexibility, at least in terms of the sort of a gender equity argument? Well, I hope that for, you know, in a workforce like the public sector where there are really large numbers of women and where, you know, from my small look at the sector, where a lot of it probably could be done digitally, that this presents an opportunity where there may have been pockets of resistance to flexible work to show that, you know, that it can be done and it can be done really well. Um, so I see that there's a lot of opportunity for both men and women who are looking to balance their, um, their family and care responsibilities with, you know, high performance, that those things shouldn't be mutually exclusive, that you can be a high performing contributor in public policy and also care for your parent, for your children or your parents, depending on which age you're at. I think though that, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing either. So it's, uh, you know, it's very clear that some men and women haven't enjoyed working from home either. Um, and so it really is about choice, facilitating choice in the workplace and providing opportunities for people to live and work their best life and to perform at their best capacity. I think one of the most interesting issue, issues that's emerging is how much more effective people seem to be being able to work from home. And I've heard this so anecdotally, but also I see in performance outcomes in just things that my organisation's been able to achieve and elsewhere. What does that mean? It seems to me that we're opening up a conversation about outcomes over presenteeism. And that then leads into, do we really need to have nine to five, nine to five and Lord knows in that having worked in government, um, I don't think I know very many people who do nine to five. It's more like nine to nine and then some. Um, but, you know, is presenteeism necessary? Do we really need to structure our cultures around a work day that begins right at the heart of school and then is take takes up all of the time up to the school pickup as well? I mean, you know, there's some fundamental flaws in the way that we've structured our time as a society that have been exposed by COVID-19 that are worthwhile keeping and reflecting on, and which is why, you know, Gen Vic is really not a fan of the snapback on childcare um, and, 
because it's, you know, it's just missing an opportunity for us to reflect on what does a healthy universal um, early childhood system potentially look like nationally and how does that interrelate with a revised IR system? Like we're really interested in um, not separating out childcare as a welfare issue and integrating it into an economic and jobs creation and participation discussion. Well, that's I mean, brings us to the second one of these natural experiments, which has been uh, the use of essentially the government, the, the Commonwealth government subsidising childcare places um, and effectively making it free. They've kind of flagged that their intention to sort of move back to the pre-COVID funding arrangements in July. What is wrong with returning to that old way of funding childcare? Look, this is not an area of my particular expertise in terms of how to fund it. Um, but what I can, I do want to talk about two things. One, the workforce, the essential service workforce. What we just have discovered during COVID-19 is that if we want the economy to keep um, ticking along in a very complicated situation, the scaffolding that you need is primarily made up of um, of women's workforces, teaching, education, retail, cleaning and caring. These are, have all been traditionally professions that have been undervalued and, and poorly paid. So we were, and what we're seeing now with this policy backflip is when we really need women and when the economy is driven and really needs women, we'll, we'll offer you anything to get there. Here, have some free childcare and we need you to get back to work. And then when that, as soon as the crisis is averted, um, we're very back, much prepared to go back to square one. It reminds me of kind of like what it must have been like when women were asked to do work during the Second World War and then expected to go back and be housewives in their, in, you know, 1950s land. Um, it's, it's, we haven't learnt very much, mate. <laughs> It would seem to me we haven't learnt much at all, Nick, about that experience, um, and so we're kind of snapping back again. And um, I, there, 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 I am noting though there does seem to be, and I don't know if it's to do with the sort of global trend and crest of sort of like a fourth wave of feminist activity in the wake of the Me Too movement globally, but there does seem to be a bit more coordinated national pushback on that issue. Um, so I don't know that it is going to snap back entirely and permanently in the way that got the that obviously the feds at this point are sort of envisaging. Um, I think that there's a bit more to be done in this space. Another concern that was um, expressed about the, the danger of the, the sort of the quarantine lockdown period was that it, it would lead to a major spike in family violence. Do we know if that actually occurred in Victoria? Look, we have some sort of preliminary data that we can, that we've, you know, sort of came out. Um, interestingly enough, there was actually early on quite an ominous reduction in calls to Safe Steps, which is the crisis telephone line, which was indicating that many women who would usually call to get help we're now feeling constrained by their domestic circumstances, the, the inability to leave the house, the fact that they were now cohabiting pretty much 24-7 with potential perpetrators. 
that that was a you know a, a sign of a problem um, but that kind of my understanding is that that actually has now evened out a little bit more to, to some extent because bystanders have filled the gap where women can't call directly so there's been an increase in the amount of people who are third parties calling on behalf of others to say there's a problem here um, the other statistics which were revealed in the age in April were that I think are important. There was a 200 plus calls a week to Victoria Police around family violence. There was a 50% increase in um, inquiries and activities in relation to intervention orders in the Magistrates Court. And there was a 94% increase to men's services. So one of the so clearly men themselves were also feeling that they were, they could recognise that they were behaving in an unsafe way and they were looking for supports um, and and so there was quite a heavy increase there. The thing that we're, that's really interesting is this, Victoria has got um, national, globally, and locally world leading gender and disaster work here that was built from Black Saturday, which shows just how damaging physically and mentally disaster is for making both men and women return to very rigid stereotypes, stereotypical behaviour. And it's bad for both of them, both groups. And then it leads, leads to conflict. So you have men feeling in a disaster and a crisis that they have to be heroic, they have to be tough, they have to do something that's you know life saving for their family or they feel they fall short of that perceived expectation of themselves and you have women who are then um you know being forced into caring supporting nurturing roles to complement that um heroism when either when either um sort of stereotype collapses or there's a conflict where one is wanting to perform the other role that's a very problematic potentially problematic prob issue for a family in a family dynamic and that's where you start to get um the risk higher risk of of violent incidents um very large and very sudden events like an epidemic um, are an enormous stress test for public services and for the public sector more generally um, and so in some ways, this moment's an opportunity to see if ideas like gender equity have sort of become hardwired or embedded in public sector policy advice and service delivery culture. Looking broadly at the thinking of the public sector in the last three months, do you think gender equity has fallen into the sort of the, the nice to have category of thinking or the kind of need to have category? I think that, to be honest, I think the jury's going to be a bit out on that. We won't know the actual situation for that until we get to the other end, I think, of the budget cycle this time round. This is one of the most important budgets, really, um, for, you know, that I think we've seen in a generation. This is about rebuilding and recovery after not just one crisis but two major crises in the state um, long before COVID, Genvic was talking about gender and disaster within the context of the summer bushfires. There are communities that are absolutely ravaged in Gippsland and in, in Goulburn. Like they're already, they were already at 
um, problem levels. So I think the, the test will be, can we, can we deliver a gender equal recovery? Can we recognise who is being hurt and damaged in, um, by the crisis and look at it both from the physical, mental and sociological impacts that the crisis has had? And can we develop public policy solutions that at the end of the day are really budgetary solutions for addressing that? You know, like they, we have to, and, and so I'll be like sort of really making my assessments about whether we've got it by where the, the next lot of funding is directed. Um, and so Jen Vick is, will be keeping quite an eye on that. Um, I hope not, Nick. Like I think, I, in my view, this is such critical work because the, you know, the question of how public policy impacts on men and women and gender diverse people is the core business of government. And we should know that how that works differentially and we should want to care to ensure that it's equal. When you reflect back on the last three months, what's an image that in your mind captures the sense of how the community sector has responded to the enormous challenge that COVID's created? You know, I actually have to commend what has been an extraordinary response by the entire Victorian government and its movable parts. I mean, the primary thing that you want government to do at this point is to protect and care for you. And really, um, I, it's, I can't fault how wonderful the daily briefings have been the the conversation and dialogue that has been retained sustained with the community digitally but also by the premier and the health minister and the chief medical officer i think you, you know probably the defining thing for me both at a federal and state level will be the acceptance of expert advice so we have seen a, a bit of a problem with that particularly in the climate change space, you know, but we actually saw, have seen politicians and, and, you know, ministers of the Crown being prepared to basically delegate some of their decision-making to scientific medical experts. And it hasn't been bad that we've done that. It has saved lives. It's kept most of the state healthy. And fingers crossed it's going to ensure that we don't have a second wave as well. So, you know, I have really, um, I actually feel quite positive about what we, the state's been able to achieve. And I'm, I'm just hopeful that, the, that we're going to continue that really, that sense of care and inclusiveness and the prioritisation of the well-being of people focused and that women are going to, women and gender equity is going to benefit out of a continued philosophy of that. Hey, Tanya Kovac, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of Public Sector Perspectives for this week. If you'd like to know more about the work of Gender Equity Victoria, you can find them on the web at genvic.org.au. -E 
www.ncbs.com.au. If you're interested in the intersection of disaster response, public policy and gender issues, there's a great article in the December 2018 issue of IPA's professional journal, the Australian Journal of Public Administration. It's called Applying a Gendered Lens to the Stay and Defend or Leave Early Approach to Bushfire Safety by Benjamin Reynolds and Megan Tyler. It's a great read and challenges our usual assumptions about policy development and implementation in this crucial area of bushfire safety. You can find links to that paper and to the GEV website in the show notes. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives via info at vic.ipaa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Nick Basto and thanks for listening.